0: Welcome, everybody. I am excited to introduce a friend of mine who I've been looking forward to interviewing for a while now. Amber Dawn is a neurodiversity advocate, writer, and coach. She works with neurodiverse people of all ages to support them in building processes and applying tools for resiliency, stress, and anxiety reduction, self-knowledge, compassion, and self-advocacy. Amber self-identifies as gifted and autistic. She's a certified positive discipline parent educator and a certified organic intelligence practitioner. Through the process of learning to better support her daughters and strengthen herself, Amber discovered organic intelligence. Organic intelligence is a protocol she now integrates into her work for building neurological resilience and expanding capacity to support healing and embodiment with her clients. Oh, I feel like we're going to have so much to unpack, Amber. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> it's a big topic. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I'm good, I'm good. Good. So, um, thanks for setting aside time with me, and and um, I'd love to just, if it's okay with you, just jump in and ask you to share with me more about your field of research and and what you do.
1: Yeah, sounds great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. So um, let's, I was gonna ask you to unpack neurodiversity first, if that's okay. I'm super curious about organic intelligence too, but we'll do that next.
1: For sure. Uh, the term neurodiversity just means the diversity that exists in a group among uh, all of our different brain types, our brain, our neurological wiring, mm-hmm. um, is just the variance that exists. Um, in a group of people, like no fingerprint is the same, no mind is the same. Ooh, yeah. And um, neurodivergent is also a word that I will use a lot, which refers to pe- individual people who diverge from the kind of societal or typical um, neurological wiring and, and,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. and how did you come to find this to be your, your field of like research and passion, really. For sure. Um, Ever since,
1: ever since I was young, I've always had a fascination with the human mind and studied psych was reading about psychology really young was wanting to work with children. When I had my own children, I was definitely well-prepared because I had studied child psychology and development, um, but hit a point when my first daughter was about two, where, uh, things were just really different than the kind of standard advice or, uh, parenting recommendations. And I realized that I needed additional support. Um, and so we went on to get a sensory processing disorder diagnosis for her and that kind of opened the gates into my diving real deep in researching uh, neurodivergent minds.
0: I bet. And is it something that you have seen more research on lately? There's uh, awareness is growing awareness. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. Um, It's really nice to see awareness growing. It's nice to see the definition of things like autism and ADHD expanding beyond just the observable symptoms and having people be able to explain their internal experience and what's even wonderful or uh, valuable about uh, being different. Uh, in addition to the challenges and honoring those, as well.
0: How how have you found that it's valuable uh, for your daughter? Yeah. Or if you want, we can come back. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: it's all good. I'm uh, smiling about it because there's there's a lot. Um, yeah. Uh, the. I'm trying to think of what in particular is valuable from the neurodivergent standpoint, the we often in kind of describing it to our to our children have talked about it as um, kind of our strengths or how You know, difference is really beautiful and there's areas where we're going to have strengths um, and areas where we're not as strong and that's similar across all human beings and really um, creating that compassion for each other, um, which is a big part of I feel like the neurodiversity movement is that, uh, you know, none of us fit into a mold or a standard process. And so it's honoring that, that individuality and the beauty of each unique person that we are. Um, what is super valuable is, uh, you know, she has hypersensitivity in some of her senses. So her hearing is amazing. Mm. Um, uh, her, ability to see things from a different perspective or ask questions that you know I would have never thought to ask when I was that age um, oh
0: yeah
1: are just are just gifts they're so fun like it just makes her a really neat person to be around
0: oh that's beautiful well I've met her and I can (laughs) I can attest to that too yeah um let's see where should we go with this um what do you think are some things that schools and workplaces can do to not only raise awareness but also to just create a more inclusive and accommodating community for people that are um, that that are neurodivergent? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, working towards awareness is a great first step. Um, but we really need to go a lot further to acceptance and understanding. Um, the most important thing I think they can do is to amplify and put at the front of these diversity movements, uh, those people who, uh, they want to include. So uh, having neurodivergent voices that you're listening to, having people of color that you're listening to, um, you know, any marginalized group that you want included, those voices need to be at the forefront of the change. Uh, There's a very common saying in the neurodivergent community of uh, nothing about us without us.
0: So it's it's sort of like, to paraphrase, it's sort of like, don't you know, assume that you're setting policies for a group of people if that group of people isn't represented in the decision-making. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Part of being, quote,
1: like a, an invisible uh, state of being or um, with neurodiversity is that our internal experience is really important. Mm -hmm. um and so listening to people who have those experiences and believing them Mm -hmm. is really important so uh it's it's really common in our society to just kind of commonly accept a typical way response and that is the only response that's acceptable um -hmm. lots of times if someone is telling you the lights are hurting their eyes or the rain is hurting their skin um, they're not trying to be difficult or making it up. It's that legitimately their sensory system interprets the data from the world differently than someone else's sensory system. And so it's believing those people and working with them uh, to create spaces that also work for their bodies.
0: Yeah, sounds, it sounds like a lot of um, just more empathy, right? Like for other people's experiences.
1: Yeah, just the understanding that uh, you know, even people think of senses as static, of hearing and seeing and sight um, as a kind of a universal experience, but it's it's not. Uh, you know, there can be differences in our neurological wiring and how the signal is relayed to our brain. There can be differences in the brain and how it processes that input. Um, there's so many unique ways. That our bodies are shaped and built and then respond to our environments um, to hold yeah that awareness and compassion and empathy
0: so tell me how how does how does this relate back to um how did how did you come to organic intelligence in in how it relates to this Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um Organic intelligence is a protocol
1: I found for working with uh, trauma and supporting human resiliency. And it kind of, um, it has a very different philosophy than the kind of exposure therapy um, that has been practiced for a long time, especially in like sensory processing things, where if you just expose them to a little bit of that sensory input at a time, even though they find it intolerable that that will Uh, cause them not to react extremely in the future, but what that is uh, actually is just desensitizing and creating a freeze response so that they learn, even though their internal experience is still having um, a negative response to that sensory stimulus they're overriding that response. You know, they're just having a freeze response. They're not reacting to it anymore. So you don't externally see the symptom that it's a problem, but internally your body is still having
0: the same response. It's just suppressing the. Yeah. It's just response suppressed. to the stimuli. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um,
1: and so the new, the kind of approach of organic intelligence is actually expanding your neurological capacity to, take in that sensory input so that you're not always having that that panic or that negative response to to the stimulus Mm -hmm. Um, so it's really about supporting the system and building that capacity like on a day where you don't get enough sleep and everything just feels Mm -hmm. harder or more difficult that's sometimes baseline for uh neurodiverse brains, like everything is just amplified by our, by our systems. And so if, um, if we can get our sensory needs met and our safety needs met and all of these basic needs in the way, if you get a good night's sleep, um, you mm-hmm. have more capacity to handle stress that day. or mm-hmm. The sensory input doesn't trigger that, um, that negative response in the body.
0: And so thank you for explaining that. So it sounds like it focuses on just sort of more of the internal process and meeting people where they're at and sort of, yeah, yeah, it's very much,
1: yeah, very much being present with people where they are um, dropping into our senses and focusing on what's pleasant or what feels good, um, Mm. which helps us be resourced and build capacity to then handle other things.
0: I'm curious, like, when um, you're, you mentioned that you're a coach also, when clients come to you, I want to be respectful of how to refer to it. Yeah, know, yeah. It's not like it's outside of what's normal, but it's, is it a diagnosis that they would get?
1: It's a challenge, I don't want to say necessarily, um, because... Access to diagnoses are extremely hard in our society. There's financial barriers, there's um, access barriers as far as the capacity to book an appointment or uh, plan or get the support in getting a diagnosis.
0: Um, You mean with the person who's trying to get the diagnosis? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It can be it can be a huge
1: challenge, um, both financially and just having access or even mm-hmm. being believed. Um, it's very difficult. A lot less girls are diagnosed. Well, non-binary often not diagnosed too. Um, boys are the most commonly uh, like found or diagnosed as far as neurodivergent because the diagnostic manual was written in essence by white males looking at this through that, that lens of symptoms um, mm-hmm. and the internal experience has been ignored for a long time. Um, neurodivergence, what I do want to say is very much a biological thing that exists. There are tons of scientific studies uh, for the different diagnoses with verifiable brain differences that are measurable um, with brain scans and certain re- responsivity. So they are a very real difference that exists. Um, we're not using that imaging technology necessarily to diagnose. We're using externally facing symptoms. So diagnosis are
0: just, it's, it's a fallible process right now. So we're just looking at things that are observable. That, but... mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they probably get mislabeled all the time as... All the time. Yeah. Just... Yeah.
1: Been. Sometimes,
0: yeah, sometimes autism is misdiagnosed
1: as an anxiety disorder or, um, yeah, yeah, all the time things are,
0: the whole picture isn't seen. And so you mentioned, um, since you brought up autism, you mentioned that you self, you're, you you self identify as autistic. Mm-hmm. When did you come to that um, self-identity? Yeah, um,
1: that's right. Yep, yep. Just in the last couple of years, um, it's a really common story among autistics to have an autistic friend who then looks at you and says, "You know, you're one of us, right?" (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so that that was definitely my story as well. Um, And then doing the research, finding the community. and really identifying with the experience of others who, who share that identity.
0: Would you like to say more about the community that you've found? And um, is it anything that you want to make sure we raise awareness around uh, whether, you know, however. We're- yeah, there's,
1: there's definitely a huge community of neurodiversity advocates and um, neurodiversity that, There's also a neurodiversity movement, which is the social movement to see neurodivergence as, um, to see the disability as a a social construct. It's not that we are disabled, it's that the social structures around us cause us to not be able to do things in that environment. And that's such an empowering message for a lot of us, Um, because especially not getting diagnosed at a young age, um, the internal Mm -hmm. monologue of just feeling broken, of feeling Mm -hmm. different, of feeling like nothing, nothing makes sense. Excluded. Uh, or can, yeah. yeah, feeling like an alien in among your own people. And so that message just is is really powerful that we're, we're not broken, we're different, and we have strengths, and um, it's beautiful. And yeah, there, there's a community of support around that.
0: So where can we find out more about the the neurodiversity movement? That's a great question. I don't
1: know of a centralized agency or organization. Um, a lot of the funding goes towards the medical model, um, which looks as a, as, a, as a diagnosis and something that's broken and needs to be medi- medicated or fixed. Mm. Um, there are a lot of individual contributors on social media, on uh, Facebook and Twitter and all of that. Um, where if you just Google uh, neurodiversity advocates, um, a lot of people will come up. Yeah. Um, there's a really great person here in the Bay Area called Nick Walker Sensei, who does Aikido and uh, neurodiversity advocacy. Uh, there's a non-binary person out of Texas uh, called NeuroRebel who also has a wonderful voice in the scene. There's several in Australia and uh, the UK as well uh, that are nationally known.
0: I was wondering about that as well, um, about whether other cultures or other countries get it right or do better than we do at recognizing, accommodating, yeah i think there's
1: challenges everywhere you go awareness is growing in a lot of places one of my favorite books actually is greta thunberg's family's book Mm. um called our houses on fire um scenes from a family and a climate in crisis i think um It's a phenomenal book that just has little short chapters about different scenes from their family and their process of discovering um, both of their daughter's neurodivergence and how that runs parallel to the process of discovering the crisis of our climate. Um, And how the way we think as human beings right now, um, is harmful both to our environment and to those of us who think differently
0: yeah greta is, is amazing mm-hmm. what do you what do you wish people did differently whether it's teachers or other parents you described i guess where I'm going with that is yeah what what do you wish people knew or did differently that would be supportive? Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that people
1: would stop invalidating other people's experiences. Uh, that's the most common thing I see in parents with children or in classrooms is um, you know it's it's not too hot in here Like it's, it's cold outside. You need to wear your coat. Um, this is an example I'm working on. My current writing is like telling a child that they have to wear a coat when they're hot. It's like for a, for a healthy child when it's not below freezing, there's no health reason to wear a coat.
0: To force them to wear a coat. My (laughs) I'd be happy to hear that. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: and, uh, You know, children tend to run hotter than adults and they're more active, so they're moving. And if they have sensory differences, they're going to feel the weather differently than we do. And so overriding their bodily experience and telling them that what they're feeling is incorrect is what starts to teach them to self-override. And it becomes really harmful as an adult when you're self overriding all the time, you lose your sense of identity, you lose your sense of self. Um, And I know the code is such a simple and common example, but this especially happens um, with uh, neurodivergent children, you know, who, um, who are told they're being bad or misbehaving because they can't sit still at a desk. But what's actually happening is, um, is neurological. Their sensory system for movement is under responsive. And so they need these big movements for their body to even register where they are in space. And if they can't register that their mind can't settle or they don't understand where their body is in space. And it's an unsettling feeling. Um, So finding ways to accommodate those needs and acknowledging them as legitimate biological needs. These are very real needs that people have. They're not doing it to be difficult or. Right. um, I mean, (laughs) right.
0: right. They probably get (laughs) labeled. Yeah. 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 Um,
1: So just understanding if you can look like just shifting the perspective, if you can look through that experience and we all as human beings, are sensory beings. So we all have senses we've experienced that are just intolerable. Like, you know, the nails on the chalkboard is the classic example where you're going to cringe and you can't. And so if somebody's having a negative sensory experience, you know, to something that you don't find unpleasant, but their body is telling them that those are nails on the chalkboard. And so being willing to modify the environment to support that so they're not having to listen to nails on the chalkboard all day and trying to, getting in trouble for not being able to focus because there's this intolerable thing in the environment.
0: Yeah, yeah, I imagine it's highly it's probably highly distracting and especially for those kids that aren't fortunate enough to have been um, you know diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And, or homeschooled too, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. I wonder yeah. how much,
0: go ahead, yeah. sorry. Yeah,
1: well, uh, just one example, NeuroRebel, who I mentioned before, uh, is always talking about working in an office space, how they suffered migraines for years and years and years. Um, and when late discovered that they were autistic and their sensory sensitivity was to the fluorescent lights in the office. And once oh, wow. they were able to remove um the fluorescent light environment, um, the migraines were gone. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's, it can have very intense and very real impacts.
0: Yeah. So it's really, it's really up to the, you know, the employer or the school to recognize that it's not up to them to define what individual's needs are and to just hold space for them when they're communicating those Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And, you know, finding a way to meet the needs of neurodivergent folks and also meet their needs. There's almost always a common ground that isn't, um, it's not a huge expense or a big uh, change. They're usually really subtle little changes. It just takes being willing to have the conversation um, and being open to those accommodations.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you, um, I appreciate you meeting with me and sharing your experiences and even your daughter's experiences. Like these are deeply personal things to talk about, but I, mm-hmm. I feel like you're doing, I, I love talking to people that are living their values and pursuing what means something to them. So For sure. is there, For sure. is there anything else that you want to make sure that, that I haven't asked you about that you wanted to share?
1: I, one thing I was also just thinking about, about um, kind of neurodiversity in the workplace, is um, even co collaborating uh, with staff and people as to their strengths or what roles within the company work well for them. Um, autistic people are extremely underemployed, um, and neurodivergent people in general. I'd really encourage businesses to. Uh, explore different interview techniques. I
0: was just gonna ask you that. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. the interview must be really intimidating if it's just, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, you're good. Um, yeah, communication
1: tends to differ among neurodivergent people. We tend to be uh, much more direct um, and that can be interpreted as rude, uh, but the intent is never rude. It's uh, honesty and clarity and um, wanting to understand and make sure that we're both on the same page so there isn't a subtext to be read. Um, If we're making a factual correction, there's no intent to undermine the other person. It's genuinely that we would want to know the fact and the truth of the matter. And so we feel that that's a gift almost giving that to somebody else. And so, yeah, the understanding and researching the different communication styles that we have, Mm -hmm. um, integrating that into interview practices, uh, finding what tasks um, really excite the neurodivergent brain and each neurodivergent brain is different. So it's going to be different for every person, but having that conversation, um, You know, what are you good at? What do you want to spend your day doing? Um, how can we support that and make that happen? Um there's lots of times pattern recognition and organization can be one really one strong suit. Um, and so things like accounting or organizing, um, etc. are all uh, different places where neurodivergent brains can really shine. And so it's doing the research and having the conversations to
0: understand this brilliant yeah I think we could use more of that in the workplace anyway you know it just seems like (laughs) and 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 I would say the same thing about the communication styles you mentioned like the honesty Mm -hmm. gets you know you're just being honest and direct and I think like I would love, I think we need more of that in the workplace, too. (laughs) 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 Clear communication is always good. Some of us can take lessons. (laughs) Yeah, there's
1: just, (laughs) there's so many different conversation styles and even cultural practices as far as conversation, um, that it's important to understand there's going to be those differences, but being able to hold both of those and bridge between them.
0: And not make assumptions. Mm -hmm. yeah. I caught a couple of books that you, uh, or a couple of links that I'd like to include in the show notes just so people can get to them. The, the Greta from, yeah, I always mess up her last name. Greta Thunberg, yeah. Thunberg, I think book. And then, um, the two contacts that you mentioned, but if there's any other websites or, or resources that you want, uh, to make sure we share um, Let me know. Sure.
1: Yeah, there's a resources tab on my website that has oh, yeah. a, a few I'll really good ones. Oh, yeah. I'll link to your
0: website. Okay. That's a good idea.
1: Thank you so much for oh. having me. It was fun to chat with you. Um,